finished uh, Romans 8 last week after <laughs> seven messages or seven studies in that chapter, that glorious chapter. Uh, and we finished it as we talked about climbing the mountain with really the, the summit, the, the, the height of that, with two spectacular promises that God makes through, obviously, by the inspiration of the Spirit and the Apostle Paul. When in chapter, or in verses 37 to 39, Paul says, first of all, that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. And then he also goes on to say that, that nothing, underscore nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, to live in such a manner as we operate from victory, we, we talked about that at more length last week, uh, but just so that we understand and we catch the context moving forward, that has a huge impact on the way we endure trials and suffering now. Because we realize that Jesus claimed the victory at the cross. Uh, he, being in Christ assures us of that same victory, that, that we share, we operate from that same position. More than conquerors. Critical to learn to live in light of that fact, because sometimes, folks, it looks like defeat, doesn't it? Sometimes it looks like, man, uh, <laughs> things are not looking good. It's really important that we remember that we're headed for heaven. It, it, it won't always be this way. It won't always hurt this much. It won't always stack up the, the way that it stacks up. It's, it's really important that we understand we operate from victory. Now, I want to make it clear that that's not saying that we act as though it doesn't hurt. Because when it hurts, it hurts. But it is saying that we know where to go when it does. Ultimate victory, being more than conquerors, it's more than a concept. It's a practical reality in our lives that as we apply God's word to our lives, we experience the peace that passes understanding that he speaks of here in the New Testament. As Christians, we live our lives tethered to this world, but we truly understand as we grow and as we understand Christ more that, yeah, we're tethered to it, but this world is not our home. We've got a home. And Jesus said, he told his disciples the night before he was executed, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in my father's house are many dwelling places and I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Wonderful promise from God's word. Wonderful promise that connects directly to being more than a conqueror. So we also look at the reality that nothing can separate us from God's love. That's utter security. Are, are you secure in your relationship with God this morning? We've talked about it before, uh, and I will teach from this pulpit that we are eternally secure. Absolutely. Positively. Everything in God's word points in that direction. There are some passages, however, that do indicate that while you can't lose your salvation, you can sure leave it. And, and, and we've looked at that back when we studied in Hebrews and Hebrews chapter six and Hebrews chapter 10, uh, just basically saying that there are those that walk away. 
heartbreaking to see people that have, and I'm, I get weirded out with, with <laughs> celebrity Christianity, but people that have been very noteworthy in our culture, in the Christian culture, we see them walking away and actually announcing it, which I think is just strange. So we live in security, more security than any security that you're going to get from your IRA or your retirement or from your friends or from your spouse. Those are areas of security in our lives, but ultimate security is not found in those things, it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. So much so that Paul, remember in chapter 8, he he, talk, he looks at the courtroom. He, he sort of gets into courtroom language. And we looked at it last week. He says, who shall bring a charge, a legal charge, is what he's saying, against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? And then he goes on to say that Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, makes intercession for us. So, in other words, when I sin, and looking and projecting it into that courtroom setting, when I sin... Jesus says, no, 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 no. That one's on me. I died for that. He's one of mine. She's one of mine. Uh, we talked about the fact that having been forgiven, having been completely vindicated by God for all of our sins, past, present, and future, that you cannot be condemned. You cannot be, <laughs> the, the accusation won't stand because somebody has already paid the price for that. Uh, and, and I talked about last week, I talked about, we call that in our judicial system, double jeopardy. You cannot be uh, tried for a crime that's already been adjudicated. And in our case, it has. So all of that's to say, as we've wrapped up chapter eight, these awesome promises, let's continue. And I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. I know, I watched the eyebrows go up. I did that on purpose. Romans 12. Now, you might be wondering about Romans 9, 10, and 11, and I'll just give you a, a bit of... <laughs> we're, we're, we'll get there. Uh, but they're situated in a place here, and they're situated correctly in this letter because they do continue from the end of Romans 8. But they constitute a pause. It's as though you put a giant set of parentheses around Romans 9, 10, and 11. Does that mean that they're diminished? Not in any sense. Not at all. However, one could literally leave off at Romans 8.39 and pick up in Romans 12.1 and not lose any of the context or any of the content. Is there something going on up here? <laughs> All right. I see a couple of you guys have weird faces. <laughs> anyway. Oh, that's your normal face. Sorry, Nicholas. <laughs> I was at a church once where there was a bird loose in the sanctuary and everybody kept looking up and the pastor thought, wow, is the rapture happening? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> you see things from up here. Anyway, so Romans 9, 10, and 11, they're this, they're this pause that, that the apostle Paul, he stops and, and he diverts. And, and you could take and, and literally take the content and the context of what's been said in chapter 8, go right to chapter 12 and not skip a beat. Let's read it together. You'll see what I mean. <clears throat> Romans eight thirty seven, And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So in Romans 8 and in Romans 12, we see as Paul writes, he uses the terms we and you. He's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, he uses they and them because he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Jews. Back to chapter 9. I just had to do that. I love teaching this part in Romans because it really is. Uh, it, 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 it just continues so beautifully. And we'll get to there. When we get to chapter 12, we'll literally pick up from the end of chapter 8. But first, these three chapters are extremely important that we understand. There is a lot of really good applicable scripture in here for us, for the church. But I'll make a distinction, and we'll get to that in a bit. So Paul, he concentrates in these eight chapters regarding the problem of sin. We looked at that. And then we looked at the fact that God, in his grace, justifies the sinner in chapters 3 through 5 through the work of the cross, through the work of Jesus and the cross as he reconciled humanity to himself. He then, he gives the gift of righteousness. Again, we looked at that at length here in this book, uh, by faith, right living, being in right relationship with him by simply trusting the work that Jesus did. Uh, he explains that in great detail in chapters six through eight about God's sanctifying work, cleansing, that his work of setting apart a people. And at the moment of my conversion, I am given infinite holiness. And I look at that and I think, wow, God, that's the only way you could do it because I know me. And and if you're honest, you know you. It's something that has to come as a gift. That is, we're declared clean, cleansed, morally acceptable in the eyes of God. It's because he sanctifies us. We also saw that in this process of sanctification, we have not only been declared holy, but we're being made holy. That there is a practical aspect that as we grow in Christ, that we are being sanctified. We have been sanctified through his death. We are being sanctified through his life, through his resurrected power. So as we look at this, that process will continue for the rest of our lives. And so all of that, understanding all of that, Paul's mind now suddenly diverts. Uh, to what had become, it, really, it had become an open wound in his own soul. He struggled with this. And that wound was Israel, his countrymen, the chosen people of God, the Jews. And, and, and it really deeply affected him, these people. Why? Because all of the things that he'd been speaking of that I just summarized, Everything that he said until now in this letter, they had refused, rejected, and and had stubbornly refused to embrace. I want to briefly trace Paul's journey uh, for context before we actually engage in the text uh, in chapter 9. 
Going back somewhere between 25 and 30 years earlier, it depends on when you date the book of Romans, probably 56 or 57 AD, long after 30 AD when Jesus was crucified, the Jews had violently rejected their long-awaited Messiah. You know that. If If you know the story, if you know the Bible, you know that that's what happened. Jesus knew that that would happen as well. He had both wept over the city and pronounced judgment against the nation just days before he himself would be executed. We read in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, it says that as now as Jesus drew near, that this is the triumphal entry. This is, we look at this usually, you know, when we celebrate and we remember the resurrection or some call it Easter or whatever. But this is when Jesus comes over the brow of the hill on the Mount of Olives and he looks down and I've come down this path. When I've been to Israel, you come over the hill and you look and just spread out before you is Herod's temple. I mean, it was a glorious sight. Of course, it's ruined now because what he prophesied came true. But it would fill your view. It's like when you're driving down the road on a country road and you come around a corner and there's like a beautiful mountain or a lake or something like that. It's just shocking to you, shocking to your senses. So he comes over the brow of the hill. He's coming down and he sees Jerusalem. And as he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, if you'd known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know or recognize the time of your visitation. So when Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome, it would be about 10 years later This prophecy, this judgment that Jesus pronounced against Israel had not yet been carried out. It wouldn't be for another 10 years. However, it would be carried out when the Roman legions under Titus came in and decimated the city after a four-year siege. So going forward from there, a couple of years after the crucifixion, the resurrection, there was a man named Saul. And he had been among those who possessed a deep, deep hatred. And that's a strong word, but I use it intentionally because he hated Christians. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 tells us he had approved of his fellow Jews, putting Stephen, the first martyr in the church, to death. However, things for Saul would shortly change. In his hatred and in his pursuing Christians to imprison them, to see them killed, He had gone to the leaders in Jerusalem. He'd gone to the council and he'd asked them for papers from the high priest that he could go and travel to Damascus and Syria, round up Christians and bring them back in chains to Jerusalem. Well, that's not exactly how the plan unfolded. Uh, As he neared Damascus in his journey, I'm just summarizing here because I want to look at his life before we get to this text here in Romans 9, uh, there we see that this uh, uh, bright light from heaven flashed around him and uh, he fell to the ground and, and heard a voice saying to him, which I think is significant, Saul, Saul, 
why do you persecute not Christians? Why do you persecute me? So they led him by the hand to Damascus. He was there for three days and three nights. He was blind from that point. The light blinded him. And being prayed for, the scales fell from his eyes. God opened his eyes, opened his heart. And he then became a champion for the cause of Christ. So from there, Paul, he would become known from as when we look at the apostle Paul, that is Saul, his name prior to his conversion. Some say the Greek and some say the Hebrew, that one is Saul, one is Paul. Uh, regardless, he becomes known as Paul. Uh, and he would become the pursued, not the pursuer. He would become the persecuted, not the persecutor. He would now breathe words of love and words of life instead of breathing threats of murder, as we're told in the book of Acts, against the followers of Christ. Radical change. Radical change in this man's life. In the meantime, the unbelieving Jews, Paul's own countrymen, as we see here in Romans 9, would continue to reject. And they would go to great lengths as he now embarked on several missionary journeys throughout the empire, the whole Mediterranean, the northern Mediterranean area. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of miles. He would travel, and these guys, the Jews, would go to great lengths, many times, over many years, across many miles, to silence him. They wanted him dead. Until they finally had him arrested, again, briefly summarizing in, in Acts, had him arrested in Jerusalem. He shared his testimony. He shared about getting knocked off his horse and all of that. And the Jews just went nuts. Uh, and had the Romans not pulled him out of the crowd, they would have taken him apart. Out of that, he was arrested and would eventually be sent off to Caesarea Maritima. He'd spend a couple of years there as a prisoner and then from there to Rome. It's remarkable to me that in the midst of all of that, and he's still in the middle of this. Like I said, he is still free. He has not yet been arrested when he writes this. And he knows that they're after him and he knows that they want his head. It's, it's remarkable that this is the background into which Paul writes these profoundly tender words in Romans 9. Let's read the first five verses together. He says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He says, I have a, I have a great sorrow. The word great there is a profound. I have a profound sorrow, continual grief in my heart. For I would, could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. He begins this entire section by stating at the outset here in verse 1, he says, I tell you the truth, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. That is critical in understanding as he now shifts, as his attention diverts from the church to Israel, that this is truly a continuation of the inspired writing that makes up the New Testament. Men filled with the Holy Spirit, 
who spoke for God. These are inspired words relating to Israel. There'd be no doubt that there would be, Paul would have detractors because he had, he had abandoned Judaism and embraced Christ. And there would be people who would be saying that he was an anti-Semite, that he practiced anti-Semitism, that he was against the Jews. And, and as he begins here, he says, I am not lying. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. I, my heart is not against the Jews. He knew he was anything but, but he, and he asserts that here. Being a Jew, he'd abandoned Judaism, and as he had now become a proponent of the gospel, they didn't like it. We'll look at, in future studies, the Jews had two issues. Number one, they didn't like, they hated God's method of salvation, because they had grown up under law. You mean everything I have done from my birth doesn't count? Yeah. It's exactly what it's meant. And they didn't like God's choice for Messiah. Those two things, they were a huge stumbling block for the Jews. But I want to develop something before we proceed here. And Paul, as seen here and in his other letters, is known as an apostle of Christ. This is really important that we understand as we dive into the next chapters. That he's working with apostolic authority. So let me tell you the difference between a disciple and an apostle. A disciple is a student. We are disciples of Christ. Uh, more than a student we're and more than a learner, it, 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 the word disciple, it means what would roughly equi- be the equivalent in our culture of being an apprentice. I remember early in my, in my career, uh, I apprenticed under some, back in the days when we actually used paint and brushes to paint signs, I was a, a, an apprentice on my way to being a journeyman sign painter. And I studied, but I not only studied, I practiced a lot. Uh, there were techniques that required a ton of time and effort. So that's sort of what a disciple is. Now, an apostle is a disciple for sure, I mean, same thing applies. However, there's a difference. The word apostle, the Greek word apostolos, literally means one who is sent. What's indicated through the scripture is, is that an apostle was appointed by God, was sent as a direct representative of God. Uh, and I want to make that distinction. Who's the greatest apostle? I love asking that trick question. Most people will say the apostle Paul. No. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 tell us, uh, the writer there, prob- probably Paul, <laughs> maybe not. Anyway, the writer in Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle uh, and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, who appointed him, the Father, the Father appointing the Son as a direct representative of himself. As Moses was faithful in all his house, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. In other words, God sending the father, sending his son as a direct representation of him, God sending God in that sense, God the father, God the son, that's the builder of the house. So he has more honor than Moses, who was one who was sent and yet wasn't deity. So, 
Jesus, is, we see in this that Jesus is co-equal with the Father. Uh, in John 14, 8 and 9, Jesus is dealing with Philip here. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And it's sufficient for us. <laughs> I love this scene. Uh, just, I wonder if Jesus ever rolled his eyes. But <laughs> Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? What's the deal, Phil? What's going on? You're asking me to show you the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Why? Because Jesus had apostolic authority as the greatest apostle to represent God to the people. In verse 11, Jesus says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. In John chapter 17, he says, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. Now I am in you and you are in me. He's talking about the way that the kingdom works is that it's about this progression. And that's not saying that all of us have apostolic authority. We'll get to that in a sec. While they weren't co-equal, the 12 these men that Jesus gathered as he conducted his earthly ministry were set apart to uniquely and directly represent or represent Christ to the world after his death and resurrection. They were given apostolic authority. There were three qualifications for an apostle. By the way, we don't qualify. The first is they had to be, have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. The 12 were. Even the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, talks about him being as one who was born out of due time because he came later. He's still, and in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about, I actually studied under Christ, the resurrected Christ. So he qualified in that sense. The second is to be able to perform signs and wonders. Now, right after the Holy Spirit was given, you see Peter on the steps of the temple with the, the guy that was there that, that wanted healing, and he says, gold and silver have I none, but in the name of Jesus, rise and take up your pallet and walk, and the guy does, he was able to heal at will. True signs and wonders. Attesting miracles, not an end to themselves. It, it makes me crazy inside when I see the, the, the stuff that's promoted like on television or in some of these aberrant groups that they do that as though it's time to put on a Holy Ghost show. It's not the Holy Ghost talent show, guys. Those signs and wonders are there for a purpose. They're there to direct it to validate the message of Christ. The third sign is to have been explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit. And these 12 were. Even Judas, it says, was named as an apostle. Now, he was a false apostle, and Paul talks about false apostles in his letters. But here, we see that those 12 had apostolic authority. They had special authority conferred upon them to represent Christ to the people. So I just want to make sure you understand that. The responsibility of the 12 apostles would be to lay the foundation for the early church. And that foundation has been laid. Apostolic authority in the sense of the 12 has ceased. Uh, There's nothing in God's word that says that that type of authority continued on beyond that. And when we get into chapter 12, we'll look at spiritual gifts. We'll look at all of that. But apostolic authority. Now, sometimes people use that term loosely for a missionary, one who is sent. And I don't have an issue with a lowercase a apostle in that context. However, uppercase a, all done. But Paul was one of them. 
as a direct representative, commissioned and sent by Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul was utterly qualified uh, to define and describe what had been had become known as the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why in his letters, he starts out, every one of his letters, with Paul, an apostle of Christ or an apostle of God. He is asserting his authority, the authority he has to write, to represent the things of God to the people. He's saying, this is not just a bunch of my ideas. This is something that the Holy Spirit is doing. He was utterly qualified uh, to describe the gospel, to carry the gospel. And his mission was to the Gentiles primarily. But that didn't mean that he didn't have a heart for the church. As the scene shifts in chapters 9 through 11 in Romans, here's my point. Paul is no less qualified to, to represent the heart, mind, and will of God towards Israel, towards those people, past, present, and future. You know, there's some really dangerous theology out there called replacement theology. And it's not real popular in American churches, but but it is popular. Uh, I shouldn't say that. It's it's popular in some reform circles. Uh, reform theology, it's dangerous. What it essentially teaches is that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. Replacement theology teaches that the Jews are no longer God's chosen people uh, and that God doesn't have specific future plans for that nation, for the nation of Israel. Now, we're going to talk about next week, we're going to talk about true Israel, not geographical Israel, but true Israel being the ones who've received the promise. And I'll get into all that next week. But understand that replacement theology teaches that the many promises made to Israel in the Bible are fulfilled in the Christian church, not in Israel. The prophecies in Scripture concerning the blessing, the restoration of Israel... Uh, to the promised land are spiritualized. They're allegorized into promises of God's blessing for the church. All of that, there is not biblical evidence. There is not a biblical foundation to support that Israel has been replaced. The point is, is that when Paul wrote and was directed, as we see in verse 1, by the Holy Spirit to write the things that he writes in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, they are truth. They are from apostolic authority, representing God's will, God's heart, his mind to the people concerning Israel. Keep in mind, as we study these chapters, the apostle is speaking for God. Uh, his, His will towards Israel. And that were the same people were the ones that were judged by God, then restored as a nation after 2,000 years. We have seen that if, if you were born before 1948 in your lifetime, that massive prophecy has been fulfilled. It's as though I look at prophecy as it's like, it's, it's like a clutch on a car. <laughs> I used to drive a stick. Uh, and, and what you would do before you change gears is you'd push in the clutch. With prophecy, we see that there was so much prophecy that was fulfilled in and around the time of Christ in, in, within the first century or so. And then it was as though the Lord pushed in the clutch. And when Israel was reestablished as a nation after 2,000 years, 
gathered together, the clutch came out, re-engaging the prophetic word in our time, in our day. So keep those things in mind as we study this. Verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and continued grief in my heart. Profound sorrow. I think about these guys. And I'm just sad. I'm grieved. He's deeply grieved because he knows the only thing left for Christ rejecting Israel would be judgment and wrath. We looked at that earlier, chapter 2 of this letter. He knows that there is not a bright future for those that reject Christ. And his burden specifically is for his own countrymen, for his people. We'll look at more on verse 2 as we close here in a little bit. In verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Folks, this isn't a metaphor. (laughs) He's serious. He's being completely honest here, knowing that they stood condemned before God, having continually rejected Messiah. The sorrow in his heart for his Jewish brothers is so great. Uh, he's saying he, he would trade places with them if he could. I want you to note too, he refers to them as his countrymen according to the flesh. Again, we'll look at that next week because it's not geographical borders that constitutes Israel. In the Old Testament, God saved a group. In the New Testament, he saves a group of individuals. Big difference. Needless to say, this is a powerful manifestation of, of genuine love. The, 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 the heart-wrenching love that Paul had for his people. I want you to understand, this is the mind of Christ. There's a difference here. Uh, and we'll look at it in a few minutes. He could have been sideways over the things that these people had repeatedly tried to do to him for decades. But he wasn't. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus himself says, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down one's life for his friends. That's what Paul is saying here. If it were possible, I would be separated. I would be accursed. That's a strong word. The word is anathema. And it means cursed of God. I would be cursed of God. I would step into their place if somehow they could step into mine and enjoy the blessing and the bounty of belonging to Christ. So have you ever wanted to trade places with someone who was in bad shape in some way? As I was preparing for this, I was taken back to uh, my daughter in the hospital in ICU one time. Um, And this is years before she went to heaven. But she was laying there and she was hovering between life and death. And I remember standing at her bed and just praying, God, if there's some way, if there's any possible way that I could take my child's place, I would. That's the strength that Paul is writing with here. That's, that's the fervor. That's, that's how his heart is orienting here. He's been teaching, 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 teaching. And then he just, all of a sudden he pops up with Israel. They're still missing it. They missed Messiah. They're still missing it. They just so reject the message. Every chance they get, they're trying to kill me. But I have a love for them. I have a strong desire born of a deep, profound sorrow for them that they come to know Jesus. Folks, in our day, as we see things getting darker out there, I have a strong desire. I have a strong sense of... of, 
seeing people step from death to life, seeing them step from darkness to light, seeing them step out of rebellion towards God into the love of God. And I believe that that's a seed that the Holy Spirit plants in every one of his people's hearts. It's what Paul is expressing here. So verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brothers, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Paul here, it's though, as he's thinking about these people, he's thinking about the rich heritage that Israel had, the rich relationship that they had had with God. God from the beginning saying, I want to set this special people apart so that they would be a light unto the nations. Exodus chapter 4 tells us that God had adopted Israel to be his son as he delivered them from Egypt. Coming out of Egypt, we see with the cloud of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night, the Shekinah glory. They were given the glory of God, the presence of God in that cloud, in that fire. It was with Israel, not the Gentiles, that God had made his covenant people. He said, I will take you as a people. I will bring you to myself. I will have a relationship with you that is unlike any relationship with any other people on the planet. It was to Israel that the law was given. He didn't give it to the Gentiles. They and they alone would be the recipients of the law, which forms a manual of worship and also a constitution for that nation. I could rabbit trail on that, but I'm not gonna. (laughs) There's a lot there in the giving of the law and what that was to Israel. It wasn't just a bunch of rules. Yeah, it was, but it wasn't just. That was how God chose to relate to them. Their sin had not been forgiven. Their sin had not, Messiah had not yet come. And so there had to be a separation. And so the law was put in in place that God could make himself not approachable to the people, but visible to the people. And again, whole study on that. Point is, he gave Israel the law. And then he gave them the elaborate rituals of service that went with the priesthood, the the sons of of Levi, the Levitical priesthood there. And, And then the sons of Aaron from among the sons of Levi. They were the ones that did the priestly duties and the sons of Levi did the rest. The service to God, the tabernacle, the temple. They were given to Israel. In addition to the covenants, God had made promises that you, I mean, somebody mentioned 7,000 the other day, uh, but innumerable promises to his people for protection from their enemies, for peace, for prosperity. And throughout their history, they had turned away from God at every junction. And yet God was long suffering. God saw them through. Verse five. He says, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. I love how Paul is like he starts to go down this road and he just it's like he begins to break into worship. And yeah, from from Israel came the Messiah, who is the eternally blessed God. 
And, and folks, this is about as close as it comes to, to flatly stating the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. He doesn't fool around with it. He states it. They were in the lineage. The Israelites were in the lineage of promise from the beginning. Through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll look at them next week because Paul goes into that next. So from the beginning with the patriarchs all the way to the fulfillment with the Messiah. He's saying all of that was for Israel. As we begin to wrap up, I want to spend a couple of minutes and tell you what about this shocks me. From verse 2. These are the same people who had demanded that Jesus be crucified decades ago. It was the Jews. God's chosen, God's covenant people. The same ones that Jesus begged forgiveness for while he hung on that cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're the same people who had chased the Apostle Paul all over the empire. I mean, I I started to make a list and I thought, oh, that message would be way too long. But they chased him all over the empire. Like I said, miles and miles over years and years in different places, different ways. Him coming to realize he's got to get out of there because they're coming over and over again. They were continuing as he wrote this. They wanted his head. They would... Eventually, as I mentioned, prevail. Have him arrested when he went to Jerusalem. There in the crowd. Uh, he would eventually be executed by Rome. At the hands of the Jews. Uh, and he would die in the same city that he's now writing to. Questions. And these are questions for us. Some are uh, hypothetical, but they apply. Why the sorrow, profound sorrow? Why the grief towards them? Why offer to somehow step into God's judgment on their behalves to deliver them from it? Did Paul have justification to be exceptionally offended with these people? Why not carry a massive grudge? He could rationalize that easily. But look at his own life. He knew where he came from. He knew that he himself had been one who had been on the other side of that. And had he not converted there on that road that day on his way to Damascus, that he would have been one of the ones trying to take his life. But by the Holy Spirit, he had traded in his justification, his rationalization to be offended. And he traded it for grace. Straight up, folks. It's about the grace of God. What that resulted in, in his heart, in his life, was compassion, grief, great sorrow towards those offending him. Question, what about you? Are you offended? Are you holding on to something? Are you embittered, stubbornly hanging on to that thing? Maybe that person that you're offended with really was wrong. They sure were in Paul's case. It's recorded. But he chose the high road. Lay it down, folks. You want to experience experience healing in your own heart, in your own life? Lay it down. 
Take that person, that situation that you have vilified in your own heart, even if they're wrong, and trade that bitterness, trade that anger, trade that hurt for grace. That's what our great example in the Apostle Paul did. And that's why he could say these things that he's saying and mean it. Even to the point of saying, if if there was any way for me to trade places with them, I would. You know, I remember many years ago, I worked for a guy, a Christian man. He hired me straight out of Bible college. His name was Bob Walker. Actually, it was Bob Walker because he was from Long Island. (laughs) And he had a very thick Long Island accent. And it was there that I learned that it's not Long Island. It's Long Island. (laughs) Anyway. I worked for him and he hired me sight unseen, paid me more money than I'd ever been paid right out of Bible college. And it was totally an act of God. I, I had I had dropped off a business or not, not even a business card. I dropped off my name at a, a place months before and he happened to come across that. And, and during the time, the year that I worked for him, we had just a powerful time. Iron, sharpening iron daily. He would schedule me in just so we could talk and have fellowship and and talk about the Bible and talk about the Lord. It was awesome. Well, he had three sons that also worked in that business. And and they saw maybe there's a little favor (laughs) because they weren't Christians. And he and I were, and, and we had a rich relationship. He went to be with the Lord last year and I miss him. One of the great mentors in my life, oddly, all of them, their names were Bob. I've had three. (laughs) Anyway, so his sons were like out to get me, not to the extent of the Apostle Paul, but they were out to get me. They did not like the fact that their father and I had this wonderful relationship and they were always either tripping me up or being rude or setting little traps <laughs> or whatever. And I got to the point where I had it. I'd had it. I'm done with these guys. I mean, these guys, they are just being so creepy and they're just ticking me off all the time. And so I said, Bob, can you stick around after work? I need to talk to you. And he goes, okay, kiddo. He called me kiddo. So we're there and he had a stand-up desk and he's leaning on his desk. And I went over to the, the, we had a drafting table in the office where, where I had worked and I'm across the room from him. And I said, I need to talk to you about your sons. He said, okay, leaning on the desk. He said, what's up kiddo? I said, well, you know, they are really getting on my nerves. And I started to kind of launch into it and his face didn't change. He just leaned on this desk and was looking me right in the eye and he's just taking it in. And I thought, man, this is going pretty good. So I launched. (laughs) I said, and furthermore, and I mean, I got, my voice went up and I went through this whole thing and he's still leaning on his desk. Hasn't said a word. And finally, like a spring that had been wound tight, that slowly wound down, I started to run out of things to say and he's still leaning on his desk. Finally, he says, are you finished? In that New York accent, I hear it in my mind. And I, by this point, I'm thinking, maybe this isn't going so well. <laughs> and I'm staring at the floor and I said, um, yeah, I'm done. He says, let me tell you something, kiddo. I said, what's that? 
And I will never forget the words that he shared with me next that were burned into my soul that have shaped my Christian experience and my life. Don't always get it right. But he said, you know, kiddo, it's better to be kind than it is to be right. And, and that hit me with the force of the Holy Spirit. I realized with the full conviction of God in my soul that I might be right. Those guys were wrong. But God is calling us to a higher response. The Bible tells us it's the kindness of God that leads someone to repentance. It's not beating them up. It's not Bible bashing. As good as that feels sometimes. I'm just kidding. No, it's not. It's, 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 it's the kindness of God. It's the love of God towards that person who's offending. That's what Paul is doing here. That's what God showed me way back then. Lord, I want to be known as a man who is kind. Do I always get it? No, I don't. I've got, I've got a lot of work to do in that area. And yet the overriding desire of my heart is to show grace, to show kindness, especially and even when people are being offensive, they're being rude, they're being rejecting as they were with him. That's God's will for us. Let's pray. Father, only you know the things perhaps which are being pictured in people's hearts here this morning, those situations or people or circumstances which have offended. We know, Lord, that you make great provision in your word as you tell us that if we have aught with our brother to leave our gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Lord, I'm thankful for this passage. I'm thankful, Lord, that the great apostle Paul would write with such tenderness towards those who had no good end in mind for him. Lord, make us people like that. Work in our hearts. Teach us to be kind instead of being right. We yield to the working of your spirit. We pray, Father, I pray for each one here, each one within the sound of my voice, each one online, that you would do that perfect work in us. We thank you for your love, your great love. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you with these issues and concerns and cares and even bitter thoughts or feelings. And know, Lord, that you desire nothing more than to work in us, to create in us the mind of Christ. We yield to that in Jesus' name. Amen.